millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 161. Not yet, Holy Roman Emperors. Last time, we talked about why Italy still mattered to Constantinople. Today, we talk about how much Constantinople still mattered in the West. Yes, we return to the realm of the Franks to find out how things have developed over the past century. But, just like last week, we will be focusing on the big picture rather than the details, and only tracking developments directly related to Byzantium. Which means that we essentially say goodbye to West Francia. Back in 912, we talked about how the Carolingian world developed during the century after Charlemagne's death. Not only did this mean a division between future France and future Germany, but the development of dozens of smaller regional power centres. This was particularly virulent in West Francia. The kings there had a small personal base in the north of the country and struggled to expand their holdings. Everywhere they were surrounded by independent counts and dukes who they couldn't easily control. Brittany, Normandy, Burgundy, Aquitaine and Toulouse all boasted independent action throughout this period. At other times, so did Anjou, Flanders, Champagne and Poitiers. What developed here was the Middle Ages of the popular imagination. Castles rose to defend smaller and smaller pockets of territory and independent retinues surrounded the regional nobility. From our point of view, this is significant for the next century because it will be these small, independent armed groups who form the backbone of the crusading armies. But for now, West Francia and Byzantium had little to do with one another. That's not to say, by the way, that the people of Western Europe were ignorant of Romania or vice versa. The symbolic power of Byzantine titles and the quality of its manufactured goods were known across the continent. Ethelstan and other West Saxon kings used the title Vasilevs on their charters, while Hugh of Arles 
had documents written in gold on purple parchment to indicate his own imperial status. Translations of John Chrysostom's work were made in Catalonia, Greek artists were hired to decorate a church in Dijon, while Greek-speaking monks are mentioned in Rouen, Cluny, Tours, Winchester, Malmesbury, and elsewhere. Over in Constantinople, Basil's brother Constantine was recorded as having greeted pilgrims headed for Jerusalem, amongst them the Bishop of Orléans, who was given relics and many other presents. But sticking to the big picture, the real action for us is over in East Francia. There, the kings maintained a far stronger presence than in the West. This was no mean feat, given that Germany remained heavily forested during this period. Today, you could drive from historic Saxony to Bavaria in six hours. In the 10th century, the same journey could take a month. You'd have to head west to the Rhine just to get around all the trees. Again, there were powerful regional figures in Bavaria, Lotharingia, Saxony, and Swabia. When the last Carolingian king died in 911, a meeting was held where each of the regional dukes agreed to elect a new king. However, what they were choosing was not a monarch the way we think of it. This role was more like the old position of dictator in the Roman Republic. Uh, More specifically, it was like choosing a first among equals, a military commander. The role of king would last for his lifetime, but he was not expected to rule over the independent dukes the way a monarch would in future England, France, and most of Europe. As you know, the Frankish world did not have centralized structures like Byzantium. Its wealthy families were independent and dominated affairs in their own localities. Charlemagne's military success had brought everyone into the same world, but once he was gone, the ability of his successors to command the peoples of Europe slowly ebbed away. Local power reasserted itself. In East Francia, it was agreed that a central authority was needed, a military commander who could lead the combined forces of the region against their external enemies. East Francia had no natural borders. To the north were the Scandinavians and their Viking raiders. To the east were the Slavs and Magyars. These threats to the peace made it sensible to elect a king to defend the whole region. The first king chosen was Henry of Saxony. He initially refused to even be crowned, accepting the office but not wanting to lord his power over his fellow dukes. Henry was thoughtful and successful. Saxony was a relatively recent addition to the Carolingian world. Charlemagne had Christianized the region in a series of bloody wars at the end of the 8th century. Now it had become the front line in a series of conflicts with the pagans living beyond the Elbe. These campaigns demanded the maintenance of a permanent military force in the region. Funded by Saxon silver mines, these soldiers would allow the Dukes of Saxony to become the reigning dynasty of East Francia throughout the 11th century. 
Henry was a wise ruler who maintained his alliances and built up his armed forces. During the 920s, the Magyars raided across the Frankish world, causing terror wherever they went. In 933, Henry defeated a large raiding party near the Unstrut River, putting an end to their invasions for the next 20 years. With his authority bolstered by this, Henry could safely leave the crown to his eldest son, Otto. In a break with Carolingian precedent, Henry didn't divide his realm between his other sons. Otto would rule alone. Predictably, his brothers made war on him, backed by the regional lords. But Otto defeated them all in turn, and when he too crushed a Magyar army in 955, his authority was unquestioned. Otto had been crowned in Aachen, and already exerted some control over West Francia and Italy. Such power naturally tempted him to begin the reunification of Charlemagne's empire. This brings us back into the narrative of the podcast. In 961, Otto marched into Italy. The northern kingdom was easily annexed, and a vulnerable pope crowned him Roman Emperor. This title had been claimed by Charlemagne's progeny, but squabbles between them had rendered it moot, and it had fallen out of use. Now, Otto claimed it as his own, with little resistance from a cowed pontiff. And what happened next is familiar to you. Liutprand of Cremona was sent to the court of Nicephorus Phocas to ask for a purple-born bride for Otto's son and acknowledgement of the imperial title. Phocas wasn't forthcoming, so Otto invaded southern Italy to press his claims. Otto wasn't interested in garrisoning the south. All he wanted was a quick response from Constantinople. Charlemagne had used similar strong-arm tactics after his coronation, but Otto's behaviour shows greater impatience. He was now in his fifties and knew that his son would struggle, just as he'd done, to maintain sole rule over East Francia. The title of emperor would help, but it would be considerably amplified by the presence of a born-in-the-purple bride. If someone like Basil's sister Anna had married Otto II, then she would have lent him a prestige that no one else could match. As you know, Phocas was murdered before any decision could be made. His successor, Zimiskis, was happy to settle the issue and get Otto off his back. But instead of messing with the Macedonians, he dispatched his niece, Theophano. She was from the Skleros clan. Theophano was, of course, not a purple-born princess, but Otto was satisfied and married her to his son before his death in 973. We'll come back to her later. Otto II, then, was crowned Emperor of the Romans and would attempt, relatively unsuccessfully, to pursue his father's legacy. He maintained his position but fought an inconclusive war with the West Franks, 
and then in 982 he lost the bloody battle of Cape Colonna against the Muslims of Sicily. As I mentioned last week, many of Otto's nobles were killed and he had to flee the scene on a Byzantine ship. This humiliation set off an uprising amongst the Slavs back in Saxony and the following year Otto unexpectedly died. This left Zimisciz's niece Theophano in charge of the regency of the young emperor Otto III. She did well in securing enough support to keep him in power until her death in 991. The 11-year-old would still need shepherding through the next few years, but would make it to adulthood and rule the empire. Otto III seems to have been heavily influenced by his mother and her entourage, for in 998 he attempted to establish a new capital for his realm at Rome. Yes, this included plans to build a new palace on the Palatine Hill. A new court ceremonial was established with many elements lifted directly from Constantinople, the emperor would dine separately from the rest of the court on a raised platform. He gave some of his administrators deliberately Byzantine designations like Logothete or Protospatharios. He even began to promote the Virgin Mary as the protector of the city. At this same time, Basil II was just beginning his counterattacks against Samuel's Bulgaria. Fearing for the security of his western possessions, he responded to a request from Otto and sent his niece Zoe to become his wife. Zoe was the born in the purple princess that the Germans had been after. She was the daughter of Basil's brother, Constantine. This was definitely a case of what might have been, because when she arrived in Apulia, News reached her that the 21-year-old emperor had fallen ill and passed away unexpectedly. Zoe returned home, and the dukes of East Francia elected a new king to take the place of the fallen Ottonian line. They chose Henry II of Bavaria. He was the grandson of one of Otto I's brothers, and so carried both regional power and royal blood. Unlike the Ottonians, he did not trouble the Byzantines too much. The focus of his reign was back in the borderlands of Saxony, where he fought wars with the emerging Polish kingdom. He would continue to carry the title Roman Emperor with him. So what are we to make of the re-establishment of a Western Roman Emperor and the Ottonian interactions with Byzantium. First of all, let's get the nomenclature out of the way. Today, we usually refer to this line of German rulers as the Holy Roman Emperors. But the holy part was only added in the 13th century by Frederick II. So at this stage, these are simply Roman Emperors. And of course, that is just a title. The real function of the emperors was to be the elected king of East Francia, a first among equals duke who took on military responsibilities for the whole realm. Naturally, 
every occupant of that position was going to cling to the title Roman Emperor because of the prestige it lent him. Forcing men to acknowledge you as above other kings was desirable and had to be maintained. But even at the time, the title itself and the role of emperor were disputed. Writers in Britain, France, Italy and Germany either ignore the new designation or dispute what it meant. Naturally, the Western Franks weren't thrilled to be included as technical subjects of this new ruler. Nor were some of the independent German dukes. They had no interest in seeing the power of this role grow beyond what they'd elected it to be. The institution who fought the hardest against this innovation, though, was the papacy. As the only figures with genuine authority across the whole of Western Europe, the popes were not going to bend the knee to the new royal line. It's also worth pointing out that the future Holy Roman Empire was not really an empire. The centralised structures of the Byzantine world just didn't exist in the West. Otto had to make do with a tiny chancery compared to the army of bureaucrats operating on the Bosphorus. And even at the height of his power, Otto I had to do a fair amount of negotiating to get his way. The local dukes were far more powerful than, say, the landed magnates of Cappadocia. Inside the duchies, assemblies, army muster, taxation and justice were all controlled by the duke. The emperors had to use their patronage carefully and continually march around their realm to secure the allegiance of their subjects. This relative weakness is what made the symbolic trappings of Byzantium so valuable. The educated men of the cities of Europe all recognised the antiquity and splendour of Constantinople's court ceremonial. To be associated by blood or by custom with the Eastern Empire remained a sign of great prestige throughout the 10th century, as it had been for the last half millennium. Otto knew that if he was going to succeed where most Carolingians had failed, he needed symbolic support from the East. He wanted to clothe his son in the trappings of imperial power to help turn that appearance into reality. So the enduring influence of the real Roman Empire remained secure. Hooray! However, Ottonian methods indicate another reality. Like Charlemagne before him, Otto eyed the Byzantine presence in Italy and concluded that the Easterners didn't really have the power to resist pressure from the north. His aggressive negotiating with Nicephorus Phocas shows us that Western monarchs correctly understood Byzantium's strategic position. Whatever impressive tales the king had heard about the white death of the Saracens, he knew that Phocas wasn't coming to Italy. Constantinople was too preoccupied with enemies closer to home to resist Western pressure for very long. As we discussed last episode, 
Italy mattered to Byzantium, and so successive Vasilefs hailed the Ottonians as emperors and sent their daughters to secure their goodwill. If Basil II had lived and reconquered Sicily, then a change in dynamic might have come. But Basil's death confirmed what the Holy Roman emperors believed. The Byzantines were not a physical threat to them, and so their status and prestige could be borrowed to bolster dreams of empire. By the way, disputes over the details of acknowledgement remained throughout the century. One pope put his foot right in it by referring to Nicephorus as emperor of the Greeks in a letter, while the Byzantines would send their missives in return to the emperor of the Franks. Westerners were welcomed to the Bosphorus as brothers in Christ, but they were not equals of the Vasilefs. He was still God's vice-regent, and nothing was going to change that. Several listeners asked whether Byzantium's century of success was registered in the West, and what difference it made to relations between the two sides. As far as I can tell, it made very little difference at all. As I commented at the time, I'm not sure people in Constantinople fully comprehended the significance of Melitene and Theodosiopolis. In the West, it's doubtful if these places were understood at all. I'm sure that the conquest of Antioch was welcomed, and this did reopen that route for pilgrims to reach Jerusalem. However, there was no sense in the West that these victories would make any geopolitical difference. I doubt that even the sense that Christian armies were succeeding over Muslim ones made that much of an impression, particularly since the battle with the Saracens of Spain and Sicily were far more pressing to Westerners. None of this is a big surprise. As Frankish politics devolved into smaller units, so did their histories. As I briefly touched on last week, chronicles written in the south of Italy refer almost entirely to local matters, as do similar offerings across Western Europe. Understanding of the Greeks, as they were now commonly labelled, and their empire was reserved for the elite of the elites. The truly well-educated those who were bilingual and moved in the court circles of the West, knew who the Byzantines were and why they mattered. But that was quite a small world. Other listeners asked about the reaction of the papacy to Nicephorus' focus and Byzantine expansion in general. Again, beyond generic sentiment of support for the emperors, I've struggled to uncover any reaction to the recovery of eastern lands for Christendom. Given that these areas were naturally under the jurisdiction of the Patriarch, there was, I suppose, little for the papacy to comment on officially. The 10th century was a difficult one for the popes in general. The usual factions battled for control of the city of Rome itself, and the appearance of the German emperors on the doorstep was a blow to their independence. 
a major confrontation would have occurred if Otto III had lived a long time. By placing himself in the Eternal City, the Emperor doubtless imagined a relationship with the Pontiff similar to the one enjoyed by Vasilevs and Patriarch. The Popes managed to avoid this fate and maintained their independence, and the location of Rome remained key to this. It was so far from the real centres of power in northern Europe that no king ever truly threatened them. A listener S asked whether the papacy ever viewed the Byzantines as a counterweight to the power of the Germans. Some factions in Rome certainly did, but generally they didn't hold sway. In fact, right at the end of our period, as I said last time, the Pope supported the rebel Milo in his seizure of Byzantine lands. For the last couple of centuries, it's been much easier for the Franks to reach Rome than the Byzantines. So it's been more crucial for the Popes to be on good terms with the North than the East. A couple of Popes were physically installed by the German emperors during the last century, so it made sense not to antagonize them by seeking Byzantine military assistance. I suspect some of the pontiffs also feared Byzantine domination. If the emperors in Constantinople were to ever return to Rome, then they would demand obedience from their archbishop, bringing with them Eastern customs and rites too. This was in many ways a far greater threat than that presented by the German emperors. The Franks still required papal consent to be crowned emperor and generally deferred to Rome in ecclesiastical matters. So even the modest reinforcements sent by Basil II in the 1020s were perceived as more threatening than the Ottonian armies that had marched through 20 years previously. Speaking of Eastern customs... We'll close today by returning to Theophano, the Scleros bride of Otto II. It's worth saying that she isn't discussed at all in Byzantine histories, while in German writing there is much debate about the influence she had on her husband, son, and court practice in general. Theophano was also the subject of much criticism during and just after her lifetime. Naturally, she brought with her a large dowry and entourage. Imperial eunuchs fussed around her, and she wore dresses of unparalleled quality, as you might expect. Half a century after her death, we find an established cleric writing about the sinful behaviour she'd introduced to court life. The superfluous clothing, jewellery and decoration she'd partaken in had led many good German women into similar acts of vanity and sin. Around the same time, another Byzantine bride had been sent west, who we'll talk about a bit more next episode. This was Maria of the Archiros family, as she had been married to John Orsiolo, the son of the Doge of Venice. In another polemic written after her death, the celebrated monk Peter Damien tore strips off her. He too singles her out for introducing luxury, triviality, and superstition into Venetian circles.
But he goes further, criticising her use of incense and spices which stank out her apartments, for her use of a fork rather than her hands when eating, and her demand for rainwater to bathe in rather than joining in the communal waters of Venice. Putting misogyny aside for a moment, why were these Western clerics using valuable ink to trash these Byzantine figures? The answer lies in the theological differences emerging between East and West. We saw these flare up a century ago during the tug-of-war over the conversion of the Bulgarians. They hadn't yet caused serious waves on either side, helped, as I mentioned last week, by the understanding forged in Italian circles. With the arrival of the Normans in southern Italy, with the conversion of the Magyars to Christianity, and then the Crusades, East and West are about to spend a lot more time in each other's company. This friction will lead to an emphasis being placed on difference rather than similarity. Western writers will look to discredit Byzantines in general to aid attacks on their theology. Wealthy women, always a potential target for the church, made for convenient scapegoats. Despite the individual good that Theofano and Maria did in bridging the gap between the two sides, their memory was used to cast their people as foreign, insidious, and sinful. It's not a huge leap from here to the mutual suspicion and hatred that will sometimes characterize the next two centuries of Byzantine history. Back in... 1025 AD, though, these feelings were still below an otherwise polite surface. Next time, we cover the other European peoples on the periphery of our story. The Venetians, the Normans, and the Hungarians. Yes, it's time for the Magyars to become a respectable Christian nation. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 